Megan, I have been using our sponsor Element, that's L-M-N-T, to boost my hydration for over a month now, and I'm really loving it. I'm just not very good at drinking plain water, and I love the taste when I pop one of these little packets, I like orange or grapefruit, into a big bottle of water. It's kind of fruity and salty, and it just helps me hydrate better overall. Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix born from the growing body of research that shows the best health outcomes occur with higher sodium levels. Each little pack delivers a significant dose of electrolytes, but minus sugar, artificial colors, and other iffy ingredients. Element's flavors are so unique, like fruity watermelon salt and spicy sweet mango chili. And we're going to set our listeners up with a variety pack so you can find your favorite. Right. You can receive a free Element sample pack containing eight flavors with any drink mix purchase when you purchase through our custom link, drinkelement.com slash momhour. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T slash momhour. This offer is available exclusively through our partnership and is available for both new and returning customers. And if you're an Element Insider, you'll have first access to Element Sparkling, a bold can of sparkling electrolyte water. Again, it's drinklmnt.com slash momhour. Hi, I'm Megan. And I'm Sarah. We're two moms with eight kids between us, and we're the hosts of The Mom Hour. On this show, we're joined by a team of unique mom voices from across the country and in different stages of motherhood to bring you tips, ideas, and encouragement, and to help you feel a little less alone. We all know that motherhood is a lot easier when real moms share honest truths and remind each other that it's all going to be okay. We're not experts. We're parents who've been there. We're not perfect. We're real. Welcome to The Mom Hour. Hi there. Welcome to The Mom Hour. I am Megan Francis here with Sarah Powers. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Megan. How are you? Oh, I am ready to dive into this episode big time. We are... Coming into your ears on a Sunday to talk about romanticizing hard stuff, romanticizing life, romanticizing monotony, however you want to put it. Um, This is kind of funny. This is going to be one of those like showing my age moments. But a few months ago, our friend Amy Clark of Mom Advice, and she has a great um, book related podcast. She in her I believe it was her email newsletter. She was talking about seeing like the younger generation. I think she was really talking about like. Gen Zers, romanticizing, yeah. um, e- living really simply and frugally and like romanticizing beans. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, what I would have called putting a positive spin on things. But I, what I didn't realize at the time is that this whole idea of romanticizing is a trend, basically, that probably yeah. started on TikTok and finally made its way over to where TikTok goes to die, yeah. Instagram. Which is where I am. 45-year-old lady Instagram, sure. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Or not to die, but to become irrelevant, you know, or to become kind of mainstream. So that's when I, that's when I realized, oh, this is a thing people are talking about. So I have a comment and a question. One, I think I was even less familiar with this trend, um, but vaguely so when you brought it up. Um, And I did a quick Google and I found a May 2022 New York Times article that traced it really back to the pandemic, which makes a ton of sense because Mm -hmm. early pandemic times required such a reframe. And while we're going to get into how it's not healthy to reframe true trauma and things like that, and we're going to get into that. But um, for a lot of us in those early quarantine days, I think there was this pull to like, okay, this is this is my life now. What are the little silver linings or what? 
how can we romanticize this new reality? This moment in time. I thought yeah. that was interesting. We can link to that um, New York Times piece because I was like, what is this trend? But the other thing, this is like an actual question for you, Megan. As you understand it, does romanticizing the hard stuff or romanticizing regular everyday life, does it mean that we embrace it with a sort of a positive mindset? Or does it mean that we actually take steps to add a bit of um, sparkle and romance? Like there, the New York Times article mentioned one TikToker who was ironing eucalyptus leaves to hang in her shower mm-hmm. as a way to like, like I think of that as like, what are small ways to beautify or specialify your everyday existence. Is that how you understand it? Or is it simply like, no, we're just reframing the fact that we're broken eating beans as like, this is a, this is the time of our lives. And is it a mindset or are we actually adding sparkle? I think it depends on the content creator because I think that there are people who are basically just like, this is what we're so, okay. Let's just say, um, the recession that never really happened or is still happening. And no one seems to know. Let's just take that as an example. If people are eating a lot of beans because they're inexpensive, some people are going to romanticize this in a thematic way. Like it's better to eat this way anyway. Um, more of that leaning in Mm -hmm. and just being like, this is where we are. Let's like, let's put a positive spin internally. Let's kind of figure out how to get on board basically. And then I think the method by which some people do that is literally to add beauty. So maybe for me, it might be like, if I've decided this has nothing to do with beans, I'm moving on. Um, (laughs) Let's pretend my dishwasher broke Uh and I was going to be hand-washing dishes for the foreseeable future because I Uh could not get a new one. Maybe one way I might romanticize that is to buy a dish soap that smells really good and Mm -hmm. use that time to meditate and stare at my window. And like, maybe I'd put a bird feeder in the window, you know, like there's, there's ways to like turn it into content (laughs) and also ways to literally add beauty to it. And then there's ways to just be like, this is where I am in life. And I'm going to, um, instead of saying, I wish I was doing something different, I'm going to come up with all the reasons why this is a great place to be. Yeah. So it sounds like it's both it it can be both a mindset reframe and an intentional um adding sprinkles so to speak but yes. it's it's it also sounds like the mindset shift is the essential piece whether you take the whether you also now light a special candle when your baby wakes you up at 4am right. or you just embrace the 4am snuggles either way it's about the mindset but it might be a mindset plus sprinkles the sprinkles help with the mindset, but the, yeah. the mindset has to be there. Otherwise you just have like a, a nice scented crappy night's sleep. Resentful sprinkles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Resentful sprinkles. <laughs> and you know, I just, I always think it's kind of fun when things get turned into trends because you know, um, no generation invents the idea of romanticizing or putting a positive spin on things or, di- or leaning into where you are in life. I mean, like this is something that like, look, I love to read uh, World War II um, fiction like that was kind of uh-huh. in that era or watch TV or movies around that era. And let's pretend you have a war garden and you are like working in some kind of a factory or something to support the war effort. And like there's that can get romanticized right mm-hmm. in these in this fiction, in this media. I'm sure at the time it was very much 
romanticized in propaganda, you know? Sure. Um, and it's very effective. People have been doing this forever to get through hard times. And so it's no one's like, this is not like something that Gen Z invented or is responsible for or anything like that. But I think that I'm a natural romanticizer and I always mm -hmm. like to see it play out in different ways. I think it's a, I think it can be a very positive personality trait. Yeah. I think it can also be a little dangerous and we can talk about that. <laughs> well, yes. And that, that is, I think it has both sides. I think you're right. And I, I know today we're going to talk about times in our lives that have felt either hard or monotonous or like maybe a little FOMO, like we didn't have something it seemed like everybody else had and how, how romanticizing those times was helpful. When it's not helpful, I think, is when it crosses over into, I guess, what we'd call toxic positivity or like yeah. not acknowledging um, a, a really problematic situation. So like, uh, I'm struggling to come up with like a really obvious example, but if um, the hard in your life is like mental illness or um, a, a, di a really serious diagnosis for you or someone you love, um, we're not talking about romanticizing that. Um, right. and, and that's where I think we have to just have those spidey senses up for messaging that can be like, oh, but this is the best time in your life. If you're postpartum and you are really struggling every single day to find contentment, a little bit of joy, laugh with some friends. And if the struggle is deep and persistent, um, that's maybe not a time where romanticizing um, postpartum life or babyhood or new motherhood is going to be helpful for you because you, you actually need a lifeline. Um, but there's lots of times, to your point, Megan, where it can be really helpful. Yeah, I think there's like, I like to think of it, it uh, the healthy way of doing it. It's really, like we said, reframing, reshaping the narrative. We, we're all telling ourselves stories about our lives all day long, right? Yep. And you can subtly reshape that narrative toward a more positive bias. Like that is science. We know that for sure, <laughs> yeah. that that is real. That's very different than rewriting the story to be someone else's story or to be something that is fiction. Like that, those are two very different things. And I think that it, it's like you have to have a little um, honesty and awareness about it with yourself and with sometimes with others, because we do, mm -hmm. we all do live very public lives and like not everyone, but mo many of us live very public lives where the message that other people might be getting about what our life is can start to feel like what we need to believe is yeah. actually happening. They get very tangled up. Yeah. Um, so there's definitely a difference between like leaning into what is making the absolute best of it, telling, reminding ourselves of the good things that are happening. And then like this pretending it isn't happening or trying to like take someone else's positive viewpoint and like layer it on top of your reality, which can also right. be a little bit tricky or impossible to do. Yeah. And I think that is um, one of the tricky parts of having so much of the media we consume be so visual where you might have the best of intentions for romanticizing your like monotonous life as a stay at home mom right now. But when you see some visual images, maybe on the TikTok or the Insta or the Pinterest, um, that desire to romanticize your own life can quickly slip over into trying to emulate someone else's 
curated, romanticized real life. Does that make sense? I, I know you know what oh, I mean. I hope the listener knows what I mean. 100%. There. Like the ironing and, the eucalyptus leaves right, to exactly. hang in the shower. And that was the what the New York Times used as that example of like 6 million views on that TikToker. And she was, I think, just saying like taking time to do a little something to make an everyday activity feel more special. Absolutely. Like I can absolutely get behind that. Um, but also, and at the same time, ironing eucalyptus leaves could be pretty extra for a lot of us. Where, where does one get eucalyptus? Is it sparking joy or is it creating, is it like a checklist of things you have to do? Yes. Um, I mean, to me, it actually sounds kind of awesome, but like, I don't even know where my ironing board is. (laughs) I have no idea. You I've told in this me house for a in year. a I haven't recent episode it. that you would be able to locate your ironing board. I'm outing you because we talked about that yeah, in our laundry episode. And Remember, you I was said, saying that I was going to do that this month. Well, we are recording this way ahead of when this actually airs. So maybe by the time it airs, I will have found it. But um, not yet. I know where my iron is, but not my ironing board. Okay. okay. Um, but I, I also think that to this example of like the visual what's really disorienting for me and I can only imagine how this feels for like maybe a newer mom who's like wait what is like how do these things go together is when a um an audio okay so you know with reels they become like trends or then this is tiktok too in fact I think tiktok is like all this basically it's like someone makes a Someone makes a piece of content and there's an audio and sometimes there's a voiceover and it might say something like, you know, let's normalize having normal houses, something like that. Let's normalize having a messy kitchen, blah, blah, blah. Okay. So you watch the first piece. It's like, it's like a cohesive thing of this person saying this and they're filming it in their home and you're like, oh, okay, great. But then the audio gets stripped out from the original, like from the original home And people start layering that audio under homes that don't look anything like that first home. So suddenly you've got audio that came from somebody who maybe really had what you would consider a messy kitchen or a normal house. And now it's on and you're hearing it over and over. So it's like it's digging into your brain. It's like becoming associated with this idea of this. What's normal is because now you've seen it. You've heard this audio 17 times. But now the visual doesn't match anymore. Mm -hmm. Something about the part of our brain, I don't, I'm not a brain scientist, it turns out, but the part of our brain that like first identified with the visual and the audio is now trying to make sense of the audio with a different visual. And I think it's very messy. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, so we're watching it going, wait, is this normal? Wait, is this messy? Wait, is this like modest? I, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me anymore. Yeah. yeah. And I think the way we consume a lot of those short form, short form content is uh, our brain is not so good at prioritizing or sorting that kind of content into what's fluffy, what's humorous, what's inspirational. It all sort of become well, the more time you spend on it, it all sort of shapes perception of reality which is why it's so tricky. So something that's yeah. even meant to be ironic or a little tongue in cheek or that nobody put that much thought into. It was like a throwaway for somebody, but it's um, those visuals are designed to stick in our brains and those audios are designed to stick in our brains. So as usual, I feel like a lot of times our thesis is like, yes, social media is tricky, <laughs> is, but romanticizing tricky. your own life doesn't have to coincide with either consuming or 
posting on social media. It can be, you can, you can romanticize your own life and never share it and never consume anybody else's version of what that is. And that's probably the best way. And I, I actually yeah. really love that this episode is going live in the middle of March because this is a time I think when there's lots of FOMO around spring mm. break travel yes, uh, and travel in general, people like planning their summer oh. travel um, and things like that. And for a lot of reasons, that's not going to be everyone's reality this year. But the thing is, it was never everyone's reality and that's not changing. So yeah. I think it's like, this could be a great little time of year to practice kind of what it looks like to in a healthy way, romanticize our lives. Okay, Sarah. So for this episode, I thought we could talk about four different like categories of our lives where sometimes I think a little dose of romanticizing can be very helpful and fun. So one would be tough seasons. And that's just like when life is rough and we (laughs) we're moms, we all have something in there to talk about with that. Another would be like restrictions and deprivation. I think this could either be financial restrictions or deprivation. It could be something pandemic related, like you can't go anywhere. It could be because you're you're sick or your kids are sick or you're recovering from something. Like there's some reason yeah. why you're having to, what do they call it in old like Edwardian novels? Reduce. You're yeah. having, yeah. Oh no, retrench, retrench. Yeah. That's the word yeah. that I see a lot in like Jane Austen novels. Um, you're having to just hold back or not do things that you want to do. Yeah. It's the corollary to FOMO or it's the, yeah, you are having FOMO because of some restriction or they go together. You're also just, you know, you're getting FOMO, but you're also just maybe not getting to do things you like to do, or you're having to shop differently or, you know, so there's just a lot going on there. Um, hard work. That's one that I think gets like left out of the equation sometimes, or can be overly romanticized in like the farming and homesteading Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I follow. Like, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, I, I know mucking out a stall is not as fun as some of those videos make it look, but there can be something romantic about hard work and the results of the hard work. And then the fourth category is like opting out or doing things differently from others. So this isn't exactly, it's not exactly restricting or depriving yourself. It's more like maybe you've decided in this season of life, you're not going to, um, take your kids to play groups anymore because of some reason. And there's pressure. There's like pressure on the outside to do things the way other people yeah, are so doing. The them. Romanticizing would almost be a way to remind yourself that this is your, that of why you made this choice because exactly. otherwise the so- society wants to question you at every turn. I could see that. It's, yeah. yeah. It's more about peer pressure. I yeah. think than it is about you actually caring that you're not doing that thing. Yeah. Um, and it's sometimes you have to remind yourself that actually yeah. Right. To your, like what you said. So, so let's start with tough seasons and I'm just going to talk about a tough season that basically is half of my life. Um, <laughs> and that was just the fact that I had five kids in 12 years. So yeah. there was like a decade where I had to actively romanticize the, like everything about my life. And I think for me, that was a lifesaver. Um, it actually led me to becoming a content creator. I mean, I yeah. didn't really start doing that professionally till I was on my third, but that's when I felt pretty good and overwhelmed and, you know, was like, oh boy. And specifically writing about parenting, it really helped me lean into my um, identity as a mom and just kind of stop fighting like the fact that bedtimes and nap times and things like that were going to rule my life. I think there was a fair amount of me trying to work around that when I just had one and then when I had two, I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. And then when I had the third, I thought, okay, it's, that's over. You know, yeah. this, this is my life. There's no point trying to um, wish or make it into something else. 
And then there were things like um, not sleeping well, changing diapers all the time. Like there was so much involved. Oh, taking kids out in, in all of them together, like out in a crowd. I had to kind of start getting a kick out of being the mom everyone turned and looked at with my big yeah. group of kids to the point where I was like, right, I wrote a book about it. Like there was a lot of content that came out of that. But if I hadn't been able to in some way romanticize that in my life, I might've just felt like a weirdo all the time. Or I might've felt jealous of friends mm -hmm. who had smaller families, or I might've felt, um, I don't know, deprived because I wasn't able to do things the way I might have been able to in my twenties had I not had all these kids. So there was, I mean, I'm just going to say like, it was everything. It was the peer pressure. It was the deprivation and restrictions. It was the hard work. It was the sleeplessness. It was all of it wrapped up into one really tough season that lasted about a decade. Do you feel like there was a, you mentioned like having your third kid and kind of being like, well, this is my life. I am now yeah. just officially a mom I'm of small it. kids. <laughs> right. Do you feel like there was a point after which it was easier to, so I guess my question is, this is a long, tough season. Like you said, it's like a decade. Did the romanticizing ebb and flow, were there seasons within that season where it didn't feel at all very romantic and you kind of leaned into the struggle or did it get easier over time? Like, do you have any sense for that? Mm, yes. And like all of the above, because yeah. there were definitely times when um, it just kind of sucked and I didn't, it was very difficult to put any kind of a rosy spin on it. Yeah. Um, but even then, like, even then I would find a way to be a little flowery with the way I described that time, you know, mm -hmm. like even then writing about it was really helpful yeah. because when you can write about something that's really hard in a way that feels very real and like it, what might connect with other people that in and of itself is romanticizing. And, and yeah. we do that with the podcast too. Right. So it's like, how do we find not necessarily the fun part? It's like not, it's not the same as fun or luxury or this is really, uh, you know, a great time or I am feel good in my body or any yeah. of that. It's more just like, this is important work and that's yeah. romanticizing yes. something. Mm -hmm. Um, this is valuable. This is necessary. Like this makes the world a better place. Like all of those things make that hard stuff. Mm -hmm. mm, palatable is the wrong word. They give it meaning and purpose. Yes. Yeah. 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 I love that. Well, my tough season that came to mind right away actually was before children. Um, and it was the year that I lived in Oxford in England and there was so much romanticizing that happened in part. I needed to, because I was very, very homesick and very lonely. And I had never, so I was 20. It was my junior year of college. So I had had a couple of years. I'd already gone away to college. I had had a couple of years being, you know, away from my family of origin and my hometown. And I think I had a bit of an um, inflated sense of independence in that, like, I didn't have a very hard time adjusting to going away to college in another state. I didn't anticipate having any problem spending a year abroad. Um, and so it was a big shock that I did. And it was a mix of things. Um, you know, even England, there are cultural differences. So there's, there's just a, there were differences in the way kids my age were socially. I didn't have a good, I didn't mesh well socially with the other Americans in my program, which for kids who study abroad, often that is kind of your, that's your home base is your, 
right. your fellow expats or fellow travelers. And then you kind of get brave and branch out from there. But I didn't have, I didn't have people, I didn't have people anywhere. And so I was very much by myself. I lived in a little room by myself. Um, and then academically, it was really, really challenging and so different from any academic work I had done. So the whole thing was like a cold, wet, windy, long, dark, like wake up call um, about just what I thought it would be versus what it was. And at the same time, Oxford is one of the most romantic places on the planet. Like I was reading Shakespeare in the Bodleian Library that is like a thousand years old. I was talking about Shakespeare with like frizzy haired professors in in like leaking Garrett offices with books stacked (laughs) in the corner. Like it looked like Hogwarts, actually Hogwarts, actually the first Harry Potter was filmed um, partly in Oxford when I was there. Um, in 2000, 2001. So it's the most, it was everything my English lit major romanticized imagination had imagined. And yet it was one of the toughest seasons I had encountered so far. So it was this big um, opportunity, I guess, to lean into the romanticizing because the rest was really, really hard. And I did, I kind of um, like, I dyed my hair really dark and like, imagined myself kind of poetic and and dreary and bleak (laughs) and I I was just gonna say like isn't misery and kind of what makes great art sometimes so at least that's the that's the stereotype it is and I thankfully I was not clinically depressed so I'm not talking about clinical depression but I was sad I was Mm. I was sad and I had like one friend and we would drink too much and smoke cigarettes and like complain about things there. And, and, you know, it was just this sort of like, as a, as a kid from a very privileged background who'd had a pretty sunny life, I did kind of romanticize and lean into like this angsty 20 year old self. And I did it in what, what was a outwardly extremely romantic setting. So now when I look back, it's very romantic, but it was also very, very hard. I think that there is so much value in the fact that you had to struggle through that. Yeah. And I think, and this is probably an episode for another day, another episode for another day. Today, it is so hard as a parent to let our kids struggle to that. Uh We're so much more educated about mental health. We're so much more on edge about mental health. Uh And also there's so many other factors at play that can like really impact kids' mental health that I think if, if I had a kid who was in England and struggling and like telling me they were, and and I'd be texting them all the time because they'd be texting me telling me how miserable they are. I would have this immediate feeling like if I don't do something, if I don't intervene, this is going to come to some terrible end. And we have to remind ourselves that actually most of the time that's still not true. Like it's, you know, but it's, I'm just acknowledging like how hard that would be to be a parent now with a kid in that, situation and yet for you what a what a like transformative time yeah that was in your life Um, right before we started recording I just have to tell you this is an email I got from Clara who's in well third hour right now okay and in eighth grade in eighth grade every now and then she's able to email me and it's always something like this I'm gonna read it to you (laughs) because this is like this is like the Clara version of Oxford Okay. okay please send me a picture of the cat. Oh, God. I am cold and bored and alone. 
and I want to leave. And I think I might have brain cancer or a spider lump in the back of my ear or possibly cellulitis. Help. Please help. Thank oh my you, gosh. Clara, eighth grade. So that's like her sig line, I think. I oh mean, gosh. so part of me is, I know she's being dramatic. Like, I know that's what's happening. But part of me is like, oh, I got to go do something. She's miserable. And like, I, I have to talk myself down mm-hmm. when I get those messages. So yeah. anyway. Yeah, that is. <laughs> we should do an episode about that soon because um, I reread the book How to Raise an Adult, which I had read several years ago, and I made Brian listen to the audiobook. So I'm full of renewed commitment to um, teenagers suffering a little bit yes, so, that they can, so that they can push through that Oxford year, the, whatever the Oxford year is for them without. Yeah. Yes. Agreed. Yeah. Oh, well, OK. Um, next, let's talk about restrictions, like not having access to pictures of your cat all day long, yes. I guess. I don't know. Um, restrictions and deprivation, things that fall under this category. Yeah. So what came to mind for me were my early years of motherhood that if you've been listening for a long time, you know, this story, I lived in Arizona. I had all three of my babies, you know, pretty close together, like two years apart each. So I had three little kids and I lived in Arizona and we didn't have, my parents lived there part of the year, but otherwise our web of community and family was not super big there. And in the summer, everyone left. It seemed like everyone left town and or had memberships to like pools, indoor climbing gym places. It was like, I felt like all the other moms had figured out Arizona summer mom life. And I just was, I was new to Arizona and then I was very new to motherhood. And so the deprivation or the restriction honestly was weather related. It, it was 110 degrees for three, four months in a row. And I I didn't have anywhere to go. And it felt like everyone was back to your like spring break travel FOMO. Like this is coming out in mid-March. It felt like everybody had someplace to go. They had like a lake in Arizona. People go up to the mountains where it's like, you know, 85 instead of 105. And, or they have like a, a little lake house up there or they go to California or they, I don't know where they went, but they were all gone. Um, and it was, not very romantic. It was, it required a lot of, um, constant reframing that this was a life I wanted that Arizona offered us a lot in terms of, you know, everything home, the home we were able to afford to buy the jobs we had. Um, and that there were a lot of good things about living there with three little kids, but that was, that was hard. I guess I'm struggling to find like, what, how did I romanticize it? I just, had to find ways to be indoors with my kids for weeks and months on end, kind of like your first one of just yeah. like, this is my life now. Yeah. And I remember you talking about it and you always seem to have good humor about it. Um, maybe that was just outwardly. <laughs> well, and I think humor like, is, you know, humor is a big piece of this. You talked about writing yeah. through tough seasons. And I would say that laughing through tough seasons, especially if you can laugh with um, co-conspirators or people who also find life just as absurd as you do is a huge benefit. And if you recall, yeah. those were the years where I even thought maybe I would be a humor writer. That was when yeah. I like thought funny moms on Twitter were like the best thing I'd ever encountered. So maybe in that season, the romance was the ability to just laugh at how 
dang hot it was and how lonely we were and how we had each other. Like my kids were healthy. We stayed inside. We went to the library. Like our car took 20 minutes to cool down. Like it just, that was our existence. You know, I read a a quote recently and I'm going to butcher it because I can't exactly remember what it said, but it said something like comedy is just tragedy, like flipped upside down. Basically Mm -hmm. that the reason we laugh at, at comedians or jokes is because it's taking something terrible and like tapping into that, those yeah. feelings that we have and then flipping it around, which I think is why humor does work as a way yeah. to romanticize. Yeah. Maybe yeah. not the way we think of, but it definitely is that. Yeah. And it helps you not feel alone. I think that's what yeah. it felt like to me was that other people understood this sort of absurd and an early motherhood is kind of absurd in and of itself. Yeah. So if you're in Minnesota, you're just living the reverse of this right now where you've been inside with kids for four yeah. months. So, yeah. Well, and I, um, I did an interview with Melody Warnick, who's a, a mm-hmm. writer I've been friends with forever, who writes about basically place making, having a sense of place around where you live and, um, and committing to communities and things like that. And, and there is a lot of that, like there's reasons that people get invested in their communities because it means that they can romanticize the parts that are great and then yeah. downplay the parts that aren't so great. And yeah. that's every place you go. Um, there's a reason people contribute to their like local, you know, their local paper that you love to read so much about mm-hmm. where you are now, like contributing to that helps you feel invested yep, and then helps you romanticize the good stuff, which is yep. really kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. Well, I'm going to take a slightly different tack, um, talking about restrictions, deprivation, et cetera. So I've been working with a financial planner, um, through the service fearless finance, who we're partnering with. And she, the first thing she had me do was like send downloads of all my account activity. And then, so every different account I use, and then she kind of compiled it and put it in categories and was like, okay, now what's this? What's this? And I was really shocked to see how much spending I was basically doing to make my kids happy. Um, basically buying them off because they're teenagers and it's really easy to spend money on them as a way to make them happy. I didn't think, I didn't realize I had fallen into that trap, right? Like that, cause I've always thought of myself as someone who's, who doesn't spoil my kids and is pretty yeah. frugal, but it can become very insidious as they become older and spoiling can look like, um, signing them up for an expensive activity just because they seem kind of bored and I don't know what to do with that. Or, stopping by the grocery store every time we're on our way past it to let them pick out a snack. Like there's a lot of things that can be that. And she's like, you know, this is an area I really want you to cut back on and you need to get their buy-in. And I thought about how readily kids can buy in Mm -hmm. to saving money. I've done it at various stages with my kids, but like I have to lead in that way because they're never going to just be like, you know what I was thinking, mom, we could really stand to reduce our grocery budget. How would you feel about homemade pizza night? Like they're, they're not going to do that, but I have a lot of power to turn that into a fun thing, um, to romanticize it. And I think that's a great lesson for them to see and like romanticizing it for them helps romanticize it for me too. So it might be something like, homemade pizza night. It might be taking them with me to Aldi so we could do deal shopping. It might be putting money in a jar to save for a vacation. Like there's lots of ways that can play out. Yeah. But I guess I would just say that when it comes to budgeting, turning that into like an adventure for the kids, a team building exercise. um, I actually think in a single parent household, this can be almost more powerful because it's like 
you kids are on my team. Like you're my partners in this. Yeah. And um, there's not like another parent who may be kind of undermining it as we all do when there's another yeah. a, a partner sometimes. So I just, I don't really have any um, specific things just yet to share about that, except to say it was a really good reminder that this is an area where bringing the kids on board and helping them figure out how to romanticize reality and purchasing and budgeting and retrenching and all of that um, is a very powerful strategy. It is. And it sort of, um, I would say, gives you an increased likelihood of accountability because just oh. like with any goal or thing that we're a new thing, a new program we're trying of any kind, when we're, when we speak it out loud and say why it's important and, and ask, or in the case of children, compel, tell them, right that this is the way things are going to be, it, it does put a little bit of a spotlight on you to walk the walk. Um, yeah. So I think it probably has an increased likelihood of success. And then um, the kids get, like you said, the kids get to see that. And will they find it romantic right away? Maybe, maybe not. But I bet you anything when they look back, it will feel like something you guys did together. I totally agree. And I actually think it's fun to like let their personalities also work for you. Owen does not like to spend money and he will not let me get away with something. If I say I'm going to do something and then I don't stick to it, he's going to call me on it. Clara will be the kind who will try to figure out a way around. I just know like I, she'll try to figure out a workaround, but still is paying attention. Like both, it's equally important that both of them see us follow through as a team, mm -hmm. but for very different reasons. Yeah. Sarah, we both know this time of year can be crazy. So this is a great time to get ahead with no prep, no mess meals from our sponsor, Factor. I love how these meals are ready to eat and delivered right to your door. I mean, you can't beat that convenience, but most importantly, they're seriously delicious. Yeah, Megan, I agree. Our whole family was impressed with the quality and flavor of Factor meals we tried. And it turned out to be a great option for my teenagers when they got home late from a theater practice or came home from school super hungry. There's zero prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. Factor meals just need to be heated for about two minutes and they're ready to go. Yeah, and for any listeners with wellness goals this month, Factor has six menu preferences to support your lifestyle. Whether you're trying to boost your protein, avoiding meat, or simply focusing on well-balanced meals. And you can pause or reschedule deliveries to fit your lifestyle. Make today the day you kickstart a new healthy routine. Head to factormeals.com slash momhour50 and use code momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code momhour50 at factormeals.com slash momhour50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Okay, Megan. Well, over here at the Mom Hour, we are big fans of our sponsor, Our Place. In fact, you, me, and our team member, Katie, were all comparing notes on our favorite product. Katie was telling us that even though she's packing up to move her family to a new house, she cannot put that mini perfect pot from Our Place into the boxes yet because she's using it like every night. Well, as someone who also has a perfect pot, I got mine as part of their mini home cook duo set. I get it. It's nonstick, which is key, but it also has all these handy features like a steam release lid with a built-in strainer and this nice beechwood spoon that nests on the handle in this perfect little peg. Okay, well, I didn't get this pot, but now I want it. That sounds so great. Our Place's cookware is great to cook with, beautiful to look at, and healthier for us as well. All of Our Place's products are made without PFAS, also known as Forever Chemicals. 
In addition to their cookware and tableware, our place is also making waves with their Wonder Oven, the most stylish all-in-one air fryer and toaster oven. Again, free from the forever chemicals found in many of those air fryers. Listeners, Our Place offers a 100-day trial with free shipping and returns, and we've got a great deal for you. Go to fromourplace.com and enter the code MOMHOUR at checkout to receive 10% off site-wide. That's fromourplace.com, code MOMHOUR. So the next category we're going to talk about is hard work. Um, This is something where I have found a little dose, a little spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down as in the wise words of Mary Poppins. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have definitely found that just psyching myself up and telling myself this thing I'm going to do, whether it's a hard stage of life because everything I'm doing is hard work or whether it's like there's this one task we're going to do and it's going to be really hard. You can become kind of avoidant when you know something is going to be hard and mm-hmm. then leaning into it is what gets you not only like gives you the energy to do it, but then gives you the reward of having done it, which is, which are two very powerful mm-hmm. um, motivators. So I'm going to just, I'm going to name two quickly, actually. One is starting a new business. Um, you know, I love to talk about starting businesses. We did a whole episode about that recently. Getting something new off the ground for me can be a very heavy lift because for lots of reasons, I don't like to take away time from the things I'm already doing. I can get a little dramatic with myself about how I don't have enough time when the reality is I do. And so for (laughs) me, it's like, I have to just kind of put myself in this mode where like, oh yeah, no, I'm going to be working on this. Like right now, work-life balance is going to not look the way it did when I was in maintenance mode. And anything new you're doing is going to look like that. Um, You know, we, we talk to ourselves about how we want our lives to be, um, balanced and reasonable and sane and all. And I agree with that all the time, but sometimes you have to kind of set that aside for the greater goal. And when I'm in that sort of phase, that's, that's just reality. And I have found that romanticizing that to myself more, this isn't the kind of thing where I want to go out and join like the hustle culture. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be a part of that because I think people do take that too literally and think that it means you have to hustle all the time. And I don't want to be part of that I guess another one of those voices. Well, that's Um, just romanticizing just the hustle itself, which is not (laughs) what you're talking about. You're talking about romanticizing, like the fact that good things come from spurts of very hard work. And that's different than like hustle for hustle's sake or like the romance of the hustle lifestyle, which I, I see that as two very different things. You're right that they they are. I you're right. And I think that maybe there's probably a way to, to talk about, like, it's not because hustling in and of itself is a moral good. You know, it's hustling is just sometimes a necessary thing to get lift, um, to get lift off on something. Yeah. But yeah. And then I guess the other one I would say is in my family, more project oriented. I love when there's a moment where we all realize together that hard, working really hard on something leads to a great reward. And yeah. um, a few years ago when we had a pool, the... <laughs> <laughs> and this was COVID summer. So we were, we had just moved into this house that had an outdoor pool and, um, it's spring and we're all home. And I'm like, guys, we are getting this pool open. Couldn't even have people come over to the house to help at right. the time. Yeah. So we're all just kind of looking at it and it was 
a nice pool, but it had like a kind of older tarp and like these big, heavy water filled tube things that hold the tarp down. And there were chemicals I had to do and like all of this stuff. And I just remember the day we all went out together and opened the pool mm-hmm. and like got the chemicals in it. And then a few, and it looked terrible. It was, the water was black. I was like, there's absolutely no way this pool is ever going. Like it might as well just throw in the towel. Right. Right. And a few days later, it was beautiful, like blue sparkling water. And we were all just like high-fiving and swinging off the rope. And it was amazing. And I still yeah. like to remind the kids of that. Like we didn't think it was really hard just to get it open because we didn't know what we were doing and it was physically difficult. Then it was like hard because we had to mentally figure it out. There was a lot of Googling and yes. like calling the landlord and like all of those things, calling Eric because he kind of knew what to do. And then there was the moment where we thought, oh, not, we worked really hard and it didn't work. And that was hard too because yes. then it was a disappointment. And then there was the waiting and the patience. And then there was the day that it was like, oh, this beautiful pool and we're all jumping in. It was the best moment. And I, it was very, I was very proud of us in that moment. So I love that story so much. And it actually made me think that I'm going to say something else when it gets to be my turn. But before we even get there, I just want to say it's so unusual nowadays for older kids and teenagers to actually like witness their parents struggling through something like that. And then to also be, be part of it. But most of us work, if we, if we are employed traditionally or self-employed, a lot of us, our kids are at school. They're not seeing us go through, say the, the push you talked about, about starting a business. I mean, they know you're going through it, but they're not witnessing it like literally in real time with their little eyes. And different than the olden days, like when it was on the farm or when they came to the factory with you and they turned 14 or whatever. I think there's something so cool about your, about struggling through hard work with and in front of your kids like that. So, um, that made me think of Brian's garden beds that he built with his own hands and power tools and wood starting in co again, starting in the COVID times with like people had a lot of time for woodworking projects. And from the very beginning, he drew the plans himself. He has a little bit, I mean, he has an art background and he's good with design, but he had never built a woodworking project. He designed the plans. He ordered the wood. He taught himself how to use power tools. And it took him a year and a half to build these garden beds in our backyard. And the kids were witness to like, exactly like you said, the, the, the mini highs and lows throughout the process. Um, and like one night he woke up in the middle of the night and he's like, I, I had a dream in the night that the bottom fell out. Cause he had filled, <laughs> he had started to fill them with dirt and the dirt is so heavy Ugh. and these are raised beds. So they're, they they do not sit on the ground so that gophers can't get in them. So they, the, they have a, a, a base and he dreamt or thought in the middle of the night that the base had fallen out. And then a couple of days later it actually happened because the, the, um, oh my gosh. the, it wasn't draining well. So the water made everything so heavy. Yeah that the bottom fell out and the kids were, they saw that. And there is something romantic about a family kind of coming together over. Now these are uh, problems of privilege. Sure. Like we're not feeding ourselves from this garden exclusively, but I do feel really grateful for the ability to struggle through that kind of stuff with, with our kids as a family. So I love that. I love that story. And I think that 
you know, you're right. Like whether or not we had a pool to jump in during the pandemic was not going to like, it wasn't a matter of life or death, although it did make that summer pretty awesome. Um, or whether you had a, a garden beds, it, but what it does do is like going through all those stages of difficulty and seeing it through. It's such a good lesson. Like it's such a good practice for even harder things down the road. Yeah. Cause you see the, you see the rise and the fall. You see how the whole journey, uh, the hero's journey, let's say yes. uh-huh. of the struggle and the disappointment and then something not working out. Right. And then like, you know, all of those things mapped out. Once you've done that, once you get a little muscle memory around that, then you can apply that to much bigger things. It's like yes. letting a toddler struggle with the block shift, uh, shape, you know, the shape sorter thing. Yes. And yes, yes, yes. you know, a toddler can kind of go through an entire emotional journey yep. in about 20 seconds with one mm-hmm. of those things. Yeah. But once they do it now, they're like, Oh, right. So I struggled. I did it. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so this is our final category, and this is about, again, like opting out, doing things differently from that peer pressure or like feeling like you have to have your life fit a certain mold kind of a way. Yeah. And romanticizing doing things differently. Yeah. Well, for me, um, shortly after the Oxford year, like a year later, when all of my friends and I were graduating college, I decided not to get a real job at all. And I decided to try to make it in the arts. I was a dancer. um, And I also was very committed to doing it financially independently, um, which was scary, but the best, um, the the thing I'm so, so, so glad about that part of my life is that I um, didn't, I had a safety net for sure, but I didn't, I was supporting myself right out of college, um, as a dancer and a dance teacher. And I waited tables and, um, I had to a little bit, uh, wrestle with the tension of all these kids, all my friends graduating from college. And I remember everyone was getting business suits, um, mm-hmm. because they were going on <laughs> interviews and I was they like, were going to oh, become yeah. suits. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 This is 2002. We're graduating college, 2002. And I was like, there was a part of me that was like, oh, I would kind of like a business suit. Like, I would like to go on an interview. Maybe I would like to take the LSAT. Maybe there was, there was like a sliding doors thing where the status quo that I was opting out of was not something that I abhorred or that like wouldn't have been a good fit for me. In fact, arguably, it might have even been a better fit for me. And yet I was like really committed to doing this different thing. And, you know, I always said like starving artist, wink, wink. And I was never starving, but I was working so many jobs. Like I did, I don't think I had a day off in like two and a half years. Like I had, I just was working constantly. And that was, I did romanticize it because I felt in my gut that it was a little bit of a now or never. I was going to do this thing then or not again. And so I had all of my roommates, all my friends were on the straight and narrow. Um, and I was not, and I'm looking back, I'm so glad that that's how I did it, but it, it took a constant reframe. I, I could never go to happy hours or anything. Cause I was working. I was, I was either dancing or waiting tables literally all the time, every holiday, every, so I, I had to romanticize because Otherwise, I would just literally be missing out of everything that the kind of mainstream was doing. You know what I think is so interesting about that is that like depending on 
your everything about the water you're swimming in. So the time, like literally the year, 2002, mm-hmm. where you were, where you had gone to college, like who your friends were, what they were doing, all of those things meant that you, what you were doing in the arts was really different from what most of the people that you'd been around yeah. and were spending time with were doing. But like it could easily be completely flipped had it sure. been a different year, had you gone to an arts school. Yeah. You know, like I'm just thinking how differently this could play out. And it could have, for somebody else, it could be that they are the one with the suit taking yes. the LSATs and all yeah. of their friends are like in a studio somewhere working yeah. on their art, you know, it, or like working on their music or whatever it is. We sometimes forget how much we're influenced by what we're surrounded by and how that can make us feel about our choices. Well, yeah. And and this was pre-social media. So all you had was the people around you. Yes. And I think I appreciated being different. And I think that's a good reminder that there's we as humans, we have both a strong pull to assimilate, to have experiences that match up with other people's to be part of the in group or whatever. And at the same time, we have this desire to be an individual and to have our experience be somehow remarkable. And I think at different points in your life, you might feel that pull more strongly in one direction or the other. I probably just because of like plucky age (laughs) and youthful naivete, I felt um, romantic and proud of the fact that I slept. It's the only time in my life I've ever slept in consistently because I was working, you know, I'd work till 11 or 1130 right. and I'd sleep. I'd hear my roommates get up in the morning and then the whole apartment would be quiet. Cause they all got on the L and went to work and I'd get up at like nine and I'd watch like morning shows. And then I'd, and then my day would start and my day would start at like 10 and it would end at 11 PM. And I even then had this knowledge that what I was doing was just a little bit different, but you're right. It wasn't different from every other dancer trying to make it in the city. It was in fact, exactly the same, but it felt different from my in-group or whatever. Yeah. Well, and I also wonder if your experience at Oxford, you know, dyeing Mm -hmm. your hair really dark and like (laughs) kind of immersing yourself in that being a little weird, feeling a little Mm -hmm. different or whatever. I wonder if that kind of helped like set you on that road. Like, Oh, this is an option for me. I can, I can, be this other person. Yep. I think it did. Well, and it for sure cured the academia right out of me. So there's that. I knew that's why, that's why I wasn't applying to master's programs in English literature. (laughs) So I have, I have one that I think nowadays would be easier and harder. So uh, this was all happening either pre-social media or so early in social media that it was nothing like the landscape that it is now. But there was definitely a point at which I kind of, at first, because I just was so overwhelmed, I couldn't, but then very intentionally started opting out of having what they were just starting to refer to as overscheduling kids, um, having lots of activities, having, you know, a lot of things going on outside the home. And I do think, again, it was like having the third baby. I just was like, I can't afford it. I actually just don't want to do it. And at some point decided, well, this is now, again, this is who I am. I am a mom who is mostly running a life out of my household, uh, out of my house. My friend group was very small. Um, I didn't do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know, know what like, you mean. I didn't yeah. go places and do stuff. And for the uh, 
to a large degree, neither did my kids. My kids hung out with each other. They hang out with their cousins and they hung out with neighbor kids if we happen to be lucky enough to have any. And that was like, that was the way we lived for quite some time. And I had to kind of romanticize slowing down. I had to romanticize the idea that instead of being on sport, like lots of sports teams and doing lots of activities and having lots of play dates, this is this other thing we're doing. I bet that looks really different for today's parents because what I witness when I'm just like mindlessly scrolling through Instagram is a lot of romanticizing of exactly what I was sort of trying to do, which was slowing down and just having a more, I don't know, just like a slower lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing now it's probably gone so full circle that to some, it actually feels like if you're not doing that, that you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And this isn't a long length of time. We're only talking about maybe 15 years, 10, 15 years ago. So it's not mm-hmm. like this was like in the 60s. We're talking about the 2000s <laughs> um, when I was making these decisions with very different um, influence and pressures. I remember even when I was uh, doing a lot of publishing in the early 2000s, so maybe from like 2004 to 2008, when I was really heavily doing a lot of magazine writing and trying to get books published Mm-hmm. that it was sort of by like my New York editors, it was sort of seen as weird that I wasn't concerned about where my kids would like what prep school they'd get into or whether their activities would get them into a good college or whatever. And I thought, well, that's just so far outside of my radar or my reality that I can't worry about that. Like I literally, it's not even an option for me to worry about that. But that was who was controlling the media. Like that yeah. was the message that was out there. And now It's all the moms like me who are like, wait, we don't want to do that. We're the ones like creating the media. But I wonder how that's tipped the scales now. Yeah, I think um, this is probably a case where the algorithm, your personal algorithm online, and then your actual peers in your actual regional community just make it wildly different. I've lived in now three different places of raising families, and I've experienced three different versions of the mm, like check oh checklisted childhood because I am rereading this book um that is that kind of like rat racy feel um to do a lot of extracurriculars or get into certain schools or play the charter school lottery game all those all these things by the way individually many of those choices are totally the right choices for a family they're not inherently bad but the the perceived kind of um, competitive nature of that kind of childhood. I have seen it. I've just seen different versions of it. And I don't know that it's definitely not gone. So I think you're right in some, in some regions, the, the slowing down movement, the move to the country and get a bunch of chickens and homeschool your kids could create as much toxic pressure as the rat race can. And I think they're both alive and well, and I would be very curious, um, just, I think our listeners would have thousands of different versions of what feels like expectations and social pressure to them, even if it's opposite ends of the objective spectrum. I think you're so right that the algorithm plays a huge part in it. I mean, I was just laughing because I'm thinking, okay, Instagram's trying to figure me out. They're like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. Chickens. Check. (laughs) Yes. She likes to look at things like goats. Uh Uh-huh. All right. Gardening. Yes. Farm. Yes. Okay. So then it's like, oh, look at this beautiful farmyard scene. Yay, look at this, you know, helpful homesteading post. Great. 
And then every now and then something slips through where I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. How, why did Insta think this was for me? But that's, they're just throwing stuff at me to see what, uh-huh. what sticks. And uh-huh. it's not all gonna, it's not all gonna stick. That's for sure. This has been fun, Sarah. And I, I would, I think this is one where I would love to hear from people about what and how they romanticize and just how this plays out in their lives. Cause I think you're so right that it's, it's regional and in lots of ways, your personal circumstances make it different. So you can always shoot us an email. Hello at the If you want to tell us what you romanticize in your life. Yeah. I'm picturing us getting sent a bunch of um, reels and memes too. Yes. Cause I feel like this is, yeah, the, the social media trend part of this was barely on my radar. And now it's one of those things that I've spoken it out loud. And now all I'm going to see is you can't ladies ironing yeah. their eucalyptus leaves to hang in the shower. <laughs> Maybe by the time this come out, I'll be doing that. That'll be like, that'll be what I do. Um, well, on Tuesday coming up, we have a very fun episode. Ha ha fun. We are going to be talking about fun yet again, one of our favorite topics, but we're going to be talking about Fun for the whole family, wink, wink. And is it possible, especially as kids are older, teenagers and older kids, to find activities that are actually fun for the whole family? We will discuss on Tuesday and we'll talk to everybody then. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to The Mom Hour. Everything we talked about in today's episode is available at themomhour.com. And hey, while you're there, you can find more than 500 podcast episodes, plus articles, playlists, and resources about motherhood and parenting at every stage. And if you like today's episode, we'd love it if you would take a minute to share the show with another mom in your life. You can also find us on Instagram at The Mom Hour, chatting and interacting with listeners between episodes. Thanks for being here, friends. We'll talk to you soon. Guess what, Megan? Over 10,000 teens are already using our sponsor, Erica, to help them unplug. That is amazing. Erica, that's Erica with a K, is the social media health app for teens that gives them the tools to unplug whenever they need to for improved health, study focus, sleep, and daily balance. It's so cool how this works to hide distracting apps from your phone at the touch of a button, keeping them out of sight and out of mind without deleting your data. Yeah, you know, teens really get that social media comes with risks, including addiction, and Erica helps them build healthy habits and self-regulation that will benefit them their whole lives. Tell your teens about Erica and save 20% on the Erica family plan with promo code THEMOMHOUR. Go to erica.app and search for plans. That's Erica with a K, E-R-I-K-A dot A-P-P and use code THEMOMHOUR to save 20%. Megan, you know what I love about our partner, The Essential Calendar? I love the product so much, of course, but I also love that it comes from a small business founded by two moms. Right, just like us. Listeners, if you're drowning in details right now, like summer camps, travel plans, end of school year mayhem, give yourself the gift of the Essential Calendar, a seasonal at-a-glance poster-sized calendar for your wall. Get 10% off your order at theessentialcalendar.com slash themomhour. That's 10% off at theessentialcalendar.com slash themomhour.